my dear brethren and sisters, sisters and young people, uh, you will notice that we have a visitor with us uh, tonight. Um, we have no intention, of course, of receiving him into fellowship as one of our number, but nevertheless we thought that uh, his presence here tonight might uh, help our deliberations and our considerations. Uh, for those in the back hall who haven't uh, yet been able to see our visitor, uh, they'll be able to come and have a look after the meeting when it's, uh, when it's over. But nevertheless, we have our visitor there tonight, Goliath, by courtesy of Brother Travis Bowen, and uh, that is a life-size scale replica of Goliath, of Gath. So you'll have some idea of, uh, if you stand up next to him, his feet are on the floor incidentally, so we haven't uh, jacked him up an extra foot or two to make him look a little bit more um, imposing than he is, but nevertheless there he is. And uh, uh, I'm very grateful to Travis for providing us with that because it does help to give us a very realistic idea of what the armies of Israel were facing, what Saul was facing, and of course ultimately what David was facing. So in our study at this present time, we take up the narrative at verse 16 of the first of Samuel. And there are several points there that we need to note very, very carefully. In verse 16, it says that the Philistine drew near morning and evening. Of course, as soon as we read the words morning and evening, we think of something that happened regularly on a daily basis in Israel. And that was the morning and evening sacrifice. A sacrifice that represented the nation of Israel dedicated to God. The bird offering was a sacrifice representing a life given in dedication to Yahweh. And so therefore during these 40 days, what we're being told here is that the army of Israel instead of concentrating their minds upon the morning and the evening sacrifice, which represented their lives dedicated to their God, they were instead spellbound by this giant of flesh, Goliath. And that is one of the reasons why they lacked faith. They were looking upon the flesh instead of looking upon the spirit. It didn't matter that they were not at the site where the morning and evening sacrifice was being held. In the same way as if for some reason or other we are not able to attend the meeting of a Sunday morning and for some reason unable to partake of the bread and the wine. If our physical presence is not there, our hearts can be there. And the hearts of the men of the army of Israel could have been directed to those things. Every morning, every evening, they should think of the priests offering the burnt offering for the nation of Israel. But their minds weren't on that. Their minds were on that which we see in the latter part of that verse. The Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. Now the phrase presented himself is rendered in the Jerusalem Bible advanced and took his stand. That's exactly what it means. He advanced and took his stand, which means that he stepped to the very fore, the forefront of the army of the Philistines. He came out from the ranks, and he stood in front of the whole army, with the army of the Philistines before him. And you can imagine how he would have stood something after the pose that we have uh, in our replica mounted tonight on the wall. With all his arrogance, 
with all his self-confidence. And so therefore, he represented the flesh in all its manifestations. He represented the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. He represented the lust of the flesh when he looked across that valley at Saul and the army of Israel and said to himself, I am such a strong and a powerful man, who can withstand me? I have confidence in myself. That was his lust of the flesh. The lust of the eye was when his eyes passed over the army assembled on the other side of the valley, the army of Israel. And in a picture in his mind's eye, saw them all dead and slaughtered and their blood shed upon that hill on the other side of the valley as he felt confident that he and the army of the Philistines behind him would very shortly accomplish. And the pride of life is seen in Goliath. In his very thoughts that motivated him in the things that he said, I can achieve that, I can do that, I can do anything I want. And there is no man over there big enough or powerful enough or strong enough to withstand him. So there is the flesh in its manifestations in sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And you know, brethren and sisters, every morning of our lives, we wake up to our own Goliath. And we wake up to a day of confronting the danger of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. For the simple reason that though we have been brought through the Lord Jesus Christ into the constitution of righteousness, the fact remains that we are made of exactly the same stuff as Goliath was made of. We have the same nature. We have the same weaknesses. We are subjected to the same pressures and the same fleshly influences. So we have to say to ourselves every day, don't let it happen. Do not let the fleshly Goliath principle rise in our lives, but rather manifest the spirit of Christ. And so the verse tells us that Goliath continued in this way 40 days. Now that is really an absolutely incredible thing. Because under normal circumstances, that would never have happened. When a champion went forth between two armies and challenged another to come out and settle the differences between the two armies by single mortal combat, it might be done for a day or two or perhaps a day or three. But for 40 days, that's unheard of. Just imagine all that army behind him had to be fed for those 40 days. They have to have sustenance. Normally an army would not do that and they would not tolerate that. They would send forth a champion and the champion would challenge the opposition to come out and fight him or send someone to fight him. But they would not tolerate a situation like that for 40 days. So the question is, who is in charge here? And the answer is, the Elohim of Yahweh. They caused that to continue for 40 days. There's a reason for that. For that incredibly long time. For one thing, just imagine the mounting tension 
on both sides but especially on the side of the Israelites with Saul as their king day after day after day morning and evening challenged by this giant this huge lump and mountain of flesh and Saul doing nothing imagine day after day the mounting tensions on both sides but you see what is significant here is the number the number 40 the number in the Bible which represents probation and judgment a very good exercise for you to do when you're marking your Bible on 1st of Samuel 17 is to get out your Strong's Concordance look up the number 40 look up the places where the number 40 occurs and you will find that time after time after time it is constantly associated with either a period of probation or judgment the word is frequently associated with humiliation with affliction and sometimes with punishment and so all of this is leading up to the humiliation of flesh the affliction that is to come upon flesh in Goliath and the punishment that he would receive for his arrogance against the God of Israel very very significantly Goliath was slain on the 40th day not a day before on the 40th day so David here becomes a type not only of the Lord Jesus Christ but of the multitudinous Christ body at the time of judgment when their sin prone Adamic nature will be rendered powerless and victory over the flesh will be celebrated when they are together with the Lord Jesus Christ elevated to divine nature so that both Christ and his bride will all be of the same divine nature they will gain the victory over the flesh once and for all but there's something else here that's very significant as well and that is that Goliath is a very powerful type here in the sense that we need to remember that the scriptures indicate that Christ and the saints will be 40 years in destroying sin as it is manifested politically in the earth among the nations by dismantling or destroying all the powers of the Gentiles so that the powers of the Gentiles will be finally slain at the end or by the end of the 40 year period and not before and of course we know as well as that don't we that the same 40 year period that judgment is coming on the Gentiles Israel will be being restored and rejuvenated during what will be for them a period of probation so therefore this verse is very very astonishing in its typical significance as well as that we might remember that the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection was 40 days with the brethren revealing to them his victory over sin but before that came about let us also remember that he was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before coming to grips with the power of the Satan and in that sense in his trial after his baptism he beat back the forces of sin and so you see there is a very good reason why the Elohim would not permit anything to happen 
Because David was to be the type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The type of the Son of God. And so the Elohim were there in that valley. Not just the Philistines and the Israelites. But a very troubled and a very frightened Saul at their head. The Elohim were there. They were in charge. But now in verse 17 we find that the scene changes. And we are taken now back to Bethlehem, to the scene of, uh, of Jesse's home. Now in that regard, which is this on the page at the moment, so that we have a remembrance of where we are, we have Jerusalem up here, we have the valley of Bethlehem here. Let us, if you may be able to see, some darkness here, which indicates a range of hills coming here like this. The valley of Eli extends around here. We believe that the section where that took place was here. We have looked once through here. But David was over here at Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is here. So within a very short space of time, we have a, 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 a journey that can be taken from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, I was not a to hear this afternoon in a, on a radio news broadcast that uh, Bethlehem is now regarded as a sort of an outer suburb of Jerusalem. There is so much building, so much that is drawn there. But also on that news broadcast this afternoon, it said that before the end of December, Bethlehem is to be handed to the Palestinians. And the Palestinians will have control over Bethlehem by the end of this year, before the end of the year, according to the case that we made, perhaps Yahweh may be otherwise. And here is where we are, which is once again your teachers of it. Because David had the journey from Bethlehem to his son. Here we have David Elah coming through here, and we are actually looking in a northeasterly direction towards the hills of Judea over here. And we believe that where we would be standing here, on this side here, would be the rise, very similar to this, and almost identical on both sides, the rise of the hill upon which there would be the temple, the, uh, the big army of the first armies. Over here, along here, the army of Israel. And running through the brook, running through the valley, the brook, that is so important to our narrative a little bit later on. So, here we learn something now about Jesse in verse 17. Let's look what it says here. Leaving the scene of battle behind altogether, we're taken into the household of Jesse. And Jesse said unto David, his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves and run to the camp to thy brethren and carry these ten cheeses under the captain of their thousand and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul and they, and all the men of Israel, are in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. Seems on the face of it, doesn't it, that verse 17 is something of a narrative. But because it's in the present tense, this is the little speech that Jesse makes to David, including the words of verse 19. So David is now to be sent to his three brothers, who were with the army, that he might take food for them. And what he's got to take is termed here parched corn, which literally should be rendered roasted ears of corn. Strong gives us that meaning, and so do uh, other uh, sources. 
and the New American Standard Bible actually renders it in that way as well. So it was roasted ears of corn. So Jesse didn't just simply send corn, he sent corn that was really right ready for eating. And presumably all they would have to do would be to put it into hot water or boiling water and cook it up and it would be palatable, ready to eat. So we had understanding in sending something that would be suitable for them. And in verse 18 he says, Carry these cheeses under the captain of their thousands. Now again we have an insight into the character of Jesse and the way of life that was manifested in Jesse's household. And we've got here a picture of a warm and hospitable household. And the fact that here Jesse has shown to be teaching his family to be thoughtful for others. And in this action, we're able to observe Jesse's very affectionate thought and care for his own sons. And that, needless to say, is one of Yahweh's own great characteristics, is it not? His thoughtfulness and his care for his own sons. He was not content to think only of his own flesh and blood, but was solicitous for the needs of others. You see, he wasn't only thinking about his own family. He said, take these also for the captains of thousands. And obviously they would be able to distribute to their men. So he was thoughtful for the needs of others. So here you have a spirit of love and sacrifice from Jesse. Because as we've already discovered, he was not a wealthy man. He was not a wealthy landowner. They were a very, very humble household indeed, was the household of Jesse. So he says, carry these cheeses under the captain of their thousands, and he says, and take their pledge, which is better rendered as in the Jerusalem Bible. Bring some token from them. That's what it means. Bring some token from them. So such was Jesse's love for his family that he asked David to bring back, if he could, some clear proof that these sons were all right, that everything was, was sound, and that they were still alive. Of course, Jesse, being so far away from the field of battle, wouldn't know what was happening. But as verse 19 indicates, he more or less assumed that they were, at this time, locked in battle with the Philistines. That's verse 19. We have that expression there. Saul and the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah. But it is better rendered, as we've just suggested, are in the valley. And uh, we find that uh, Young's literal translation gives that. So does the Jerusalem Bible and numerous other translations as well. So in other words, verse 19 is still part of Jesse's word to David. So being a man of faith, he presumed that Saul and the army would be fighting the Philistines. But instead of that, and quite unbeknown to Jesse, they were cringing before the might and the arrogance of Goliath. Now that's the setting that we have for David's journey from Bethlehem to the valley of Elah. And so verse 20 tells us that David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. Now you'll notice something very important about this. Everything is important to us in Scripture. As long as we are prepared to look and to listen to the voice of Yahweh coming from the Word and to meditate upon what He is telling us. Why does He tell us that? Well, immediately our minds ought to go to Genesis 22 and verse 3. When Abraham was told to take thy son, thine only son Isaac, and offer him for a sacrifice. 
And the scripture says there in Genesis 22 and verse 3, that Abraham rose early in the morning. The same expression that we have here. I think most of us here tonight who are fathers with sons, if we received an instruction like that, if there would ever be a day when we would really sleep in, perhaps until lunchtime or mid-afternoon, it would be that day. We would have an incredible desire to delay such an action as taking one's own son to a place determined by God and there to offer him as a sacrifice. But that was not Abraham's disposition. Abraham rose early in the morning. You know why? Because it was a commission that had been given him by God. And therefore what he had to do is to get on and do it. And of course he did so in faith. Knowing that though Isaac be offered as a sacrifice, Yahweh would raise him from the dead because of the promises that had been made concerning Isaac. So here we have a state here, a wording here, indicative of the fact that David was obedient to his father. And in that, of course, he typifies also the Lord Jesus Christ. And he should typify all the saints in their obedience to our father. And we see here evidence of his desire to carry out his commission that the fa- his father had given him with a minimum of delay. Whatever had to be done, he was going to do it. So there's another insight into David's character. But what about ourselves? And what about our own understanding of the word commitment in relation to the truth? Are the commandments of the father? And the things that life in the truth demands of us? Are we busy about our father's business? As the Lord Jesus Christ said as a young boy. Do we understand the necessity of the metaphor here when we apply it as a type that David rose up early in the morning because his mind was upon that which his father wanted him to do and he wanted to commit himself to that cause without delay. And he left the sheep with a keeper. That also is very significant. He did not desert the sheep. He saw that they were properly cared for and provided for. That's another insight into David's character. Being a teenage boy, you can imagine him perhaps being excited at the prospect of going to the very field of battle. You can perhaps imagine him chafing at the bit as it were for days and days beforehand and saying to himself that he wished that he could be there. But his duty was to mind the sheep. His father's sheep. And then when his father says, look, I want you to go and I want you to take these things and I want you to take this food, imagine the excitement of David that he would feel. And you can imagine any teenage boy under those circumstances just forgetting everything else and say, where's the food, Father? Where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to take it in? And say, well, and going. But he didn't. He did not desert the sheep. But then you see, it says that he went. And these words are significant. They're all significant, really. He went as Jesse had commanded him. You see, those words represent to us 
But there was no questioning of his father's authority. He didn't ask his father whether it wouldn't be better if he just went on his own and forgot about the food. And he could have said, look father, instead of having to lug all this stuff there, all the way from here to Elah, up those hills and through those valleys and whatnot, isn't it more important that I actually get there and find out how the other boys are? Isn't that more important? Isn't this a matter of urgency? You could understand a young lad saying that, but not David. It says he went as Jesse had commanded him. No questioning whatever of his father's authority. No arguing. You see the point there and the type there? Complete harmony between father and son. And with that in mind, perhaps we could make a note of John chapter 4 and verse 34 where the Lord Jesus Christ says, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And that was the spirit that we find here in David. And so here in verse 20, David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the army was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. The first thing we're told there is that he came to the trench well, some versions render it the entrenchment, but others render it the circular rampart. And uh, the New American Standard Bible renders it the circle of the army, which indicates that before going out to battle, they were assembled in a, a circular manner. But whether we say, see it as an entrenchment or whether we see it as a circular gathering together of the army, it doesn't really matter very much because at this particular point the army was going forth to the fight. So in verse 21 David finds that he has arrived there at the very time when Israel is starting to move. In verse 21 Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array army against army. So you see now after 40 days the Philistines had become tired of waiting and obviously there were signs on the other side of the valley that something was going to develop. So now both armies were preparing for battle. So you see, after 40 days, and not before, the Elohim let matters proceed. Exactly at the point when David enters the camp, the men of Israel are getting right ready and they are, they are moving forward to confront the army of the Philistines. At the very moment that David comes into the ranks, who was in charge there? There's no doubt as to who was in charge. The Elohim were there. In numbers, no doubt. And so verse 22 says that David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. Now when it says he left his carriage, the word carriage should be more correctly rendered as stuff, meaning where all the, all the paraphernalia, all the luggage and the baggage was. It's rendered as stuff. In chapter 10 verse 22 and in chapter 25 verse 13 and again in chapter 30 verse 24. In all those passages, this same word is rendered as stuff. 
Of course, what it means is baggage and all the things that go with an army, where all the food would be piled up and uh, all non-essential weapons and all their gear changes of, uh, of uh, armament and so forth was all there. But certainly David did not arrive in a carriage. He wasn't Prince Charles. So he arrived and he ran into the army. But more correctly here we should understand it as meaning he ran unto the ranks, which is how Rotherham renders it. Or the New American Standard Bible renders it, ran to the battle line. And the Jerusalem Bible renders it, David left the bundle in charge of the baggage guard, ran to the battle line and went to ask his brothers how they were. And that's exactly what it means. So they were moving forward. And David sees that he's arrived at this incredible moment in time. They are taking up their positions. They're not necessarily going right across that valley to fight right now because the Israelites didn't really have much of a, an appetite for fighting. But they knew it was inevitable, so they are moving into position. So David arrived at what must have been a most crucial moment. And he ran, obviously, because of the excitement of the moment. How remarkable. There's only one thing that can explain all that. And that is the hand of providence. There couldn't be anything else. But that event and those various events should all fall into place in that way. After a drawn out period of 40 days, now there is going to be action. And David is there, running among the men, looking for his brothers. And so in verse 23, we read that as he talked with them, he's found them now, behold there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. And David heard. You'll notice the word then is in italics. And again this word champion, which as we've seen occurs in verse 4, is a word which means a man between the two. So again we see that Goliath separated himself from the army of the Philistines and once again comes and stands at the forefront to utter his arrogant challenge and he's going to do this now for the last time. But the words that are so important there, brethren and sisters and young people, are the simple words, and David heard. For the first time, he looked out across this valley and he saw this mountain of flesh on the other side of the valley. For the first time, he heard this voice thunder out across the valley with a challenge, defying the army of Israel and calling upon them to send out a man to fight. How did David's mind react to these words and the sight of that mountain of flesh? Now the answer is quite differently to the other men of Israel. He was not frightened. He showed no fear because his mind was motivated by faith. 
as we shall see again and again throughout these verses. But in verse 24, as for the army, it says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Now they have been marching forward, ready to take up positions to fight. But once again, the sight of Goliath is too much. And one version remembers that all the men of Israel fled from the man in terror. And do you know what that means? It means that in a typical sense, they were impressed by sin's power to destroy them. And sin can destroy us too. But only if we lack the faith and the commitment to the truth. You see, the words that apply here are the words that are found in the first of John in chapter 5 and verse 4 where John puts it very, very simply when he says, For whatsoever is born of God. In other words, true sons and true daughters of the living God. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now when the men of Israel looked out upon Goliath on the other side of the valley, they saw only his strength. But when David looked upon that figure and heard the voice, he saw only Yahweh's strength. And he knew which was the greater. No question in his mind. He knew which was the greater. In that giant, he saw not the mountains of, mountain of flesh, or the power or the strength of flesh. What he saw was the means of overcoming it. And that was faith in Yahweh's ability to allow him to gain the victory over Goliath. And so David sees all this. And in verse 25 where it says that the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? They say to David, because he's a new arrival. He's just arrived on the scene. Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up? And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now think about that and what that's telling us. But all the men in the army of Israel knew that Saul had spread this word. So it says, surely to defy Israel is he come up. And that word defy is the same as the word in verse 10, where we saw it signifies particularly reproach. And it's rendered here in Young's literal translation as, I have reproached the ranks of Israel this day. In other words, he's heaped contempt upon them because of their terror and their fear and their lack of courage. And the word means to gather or to pluck off. And therefore by a figure, it means to carp at or to scorn or to reproach, according to Gesenius. And so David immediately saw that this action on the part of Goliath 
was a reflection not only upon Israel, but upon Yahweh himself. Notice the end of verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's how David saw it. Quite differently to the way Saul and the men of the army of Israel saw it. But you see, here is Saul's message. The man who killeth him, the king will enrich. You see what it means? Instead of entrusting the matter to Yahweh in prayer, Saul fought, he's tried to fight, flesh with flesh. That's what he sought to do. He tried to fight flesh with flesh. And he did it upon the basis of bribery. If one of you fellows will only come forward and go out there and kill that giant on the other side of the valley, I will make you rich in the things of the flesh, in materialistic advantages. I will cater to your lust of the flesh, lust of the eye and pride of life. I will give you my daughter. I will enrich you. I will give you standing in the, in the land of Israel. Bribery to fight flesh with flesh. And then it adds, and will make his father's house free. And of course we learned in our very first study in chapter 8 and verses 10 to 18 that every family in Israel was going to have obligations to pay taxes to a king when they got him. And now they've got him. But you see, David is absolutely dumbstruck at this whole situation. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Now that just wasn't just an expression. It was an expression of revulsion based upon one vital principle. And it was this, that circumcision was the token of the covenant. So the phrase speaks of one not in covenant relationship with Yahweh, but not only that, we can have a degree of sympathy for that situation because we can hope to bring people into covenant relationship. But when you get somebody not only not in covenant relationship, but someone who defies and blasphemes the name of Israel's God, that becomes a matter of revulsion to the Davids of this world. Because you see, covenant relationship between David and Yahweh meant everything to that boy. He understood what it meant. And that is what is meant by this expression, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And he adds, that he should defy the armies of the living God. Notice that he does not say that he should defy the armies of Israel, but the armies of the living God. And I believe that with his element of faith, as strong as it was, David would have been well aware that the presence of Yahweh was right there in that valley. Through the Elohim. David would have had no doubts about that, whatever, and the word living indicates that. The armies of the living God. So David expresses here two great grounds of confidence. 
One is that Israel is in covenant relationship with Yahweh, but the Philistines are not. And the other is that Israel's God was a living God, whereas the gods of the Philistines were lifeless idols. And the only thing that could get all those things in order in priority in the mind of David under those circumstances and in the excitement of that moment was the principle of faith that overrode every other consideration in his mind. So in verse 27, the people answered him after this manner saying, So shall it be done. So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. Their minds are still back on what can be got for somebody? What the advantages are? But it's rather interesting, you know, that Saul, in making this promise, failed to honour his word, because if you note verse 17, have a look with me at verse 17, and then the latter part of verse 27, you'll find that he was not a man of his word. Uh, Chapter 18, I'm sorry, and verse 17. Chapter 18, verse 17. And the latter part of verse 27. In verse 17, Saul said unto David, this is after it's all over, needless to say, Behold, my elder daughter, Nerab, her will I give thee to wife, only be thou valiant for me and fight Yahweh's battles. My elder daughter, Nerab. Now you look at verse 27, and the latter part of that, where it says that David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in the full tale to the king, that's full tally, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, to wife. So the promise that is recorded back here in chapter 17 and in verse 25 was not from an honest man. He did not even honour his word in regard to that. So in verse 28, we find that David's words were now starting to make an impact upon his eldest brother. Verse 28 says that Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and thy naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. So here's Eliab's reaction. And yet David's outburst was absolutely guileless. David was merely expressing his absolute indignation at the effrontery of Goliath and yet it appears to have sparked off perhaps a sense of humiliating guilt on the part of Eliab. And Eliab's anger, it says, was kindled. Doesn't that remind us of Genesis 37 when the anger of Joseph's brethren was raised against him? Doesn't it remind us too of the way in which the kin of the Lord Jesus Christ showed the same attitude toward him in certain circumstances? But here we find that Eliab was angry and yet he was angry without a cause. And you know, in anger, we are sometimes more concerned with inflicting hurt upon others rather than speaking the truth. 
It's one of the aspects of anger. When it is not controlled. And it's not righteous anger. And Eliab here could not discern the cause of the truth that was in David's heart. Because his anger was keeping that out. He didn't have a good look at his brother and say to himself, well, what my brother is saying is right. And you know we have to be very careful with anger. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 9 says, Anger resteth in the bosom of fools. And here sadly Eliab was making a fool of himself. Because anger is something that usually shoots forth from the mouth. You know how sometimes it's said, isn't it? The expression is used that we get our mouth into gear before our brain. And that does sometimes happen. So he is spoken of in this way. Now, with that hand still in 1 Samuel 17, come back with me if you would for a moment to John chapter 10 and verse 20. Notice what we find here. Exactly the same thing happening to the Son of God, the Son of David. John 10 and verse 20 says, And many of them said, He hath the devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? And that's what Eliab's saying. He's virtually by this reprimand saying to others, Look, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He is actually a naughty boy. And here were the kin of the Lord in this way. That is his, his kinsmen, the, the, uh, the, uh, the people of Israel. But his actual relatives in uh, Mark chapter 3 and in verse 21, we find that his own relatives, when his friends heard of it, says Mark 3 and verse 21, and you'll notice the margin more correctly renders kinsmen. In other words, his family, his brothers, the other members of his family. When his family heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. At that point, they could not understand what was happening any more than could Elijah. So here again we see David as a type of Christ. So, Eliab says in verse 28, All the, reason, the only reason you're here is that you might see the battle. You've only come along to stand on the top of the hill and watch all the rest of us go out and get slaughtered. That's the only reason you've come. But David is quite appalled at this. And in verse 29, it says that David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And the expression is rendered in some versions, What have I done now? said David. I merely asked a question. New American Standard Bible and Moffat virtually render it in that way. What have I done now? said David. I merely asked a question. So David disclaims any wrong motive, whatever. So in verse 30 it says, He turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. So David is now going around among the men of the army trying to get some encouragement to these men. Trying to get them to see that that great creature on the other side of the valley is nothing but a lump of flesh and he is to find the army of the living God. Now look what happens here. Saul gets to hear about this. And in verse 31, when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul. That means they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. You know why he sent for him? 
Because what David was saying was downright dangerous. And it could have very easily, with the men in the state of mind that they were, caused a great percentage of the army to just simply turn and run. It seemed to Saul as though these words were really undermining the whole situation. So we find that he sins for David. And look at verse 32. Here's David now standing before the king. And David, this young lad, a teenage boy, said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And you know, some versions render it, and quite a number do. Let not my Lord's courage fail him, because I will go and fight with this Philistine. Now whether it's to be understood that way, or whether it's to be understood as representative of the whole army of Israel, it doesn't matter. Do you see what we've got here? We've got the incredible situation of a young lad exhorting his own king to have faith. That's what he's doing. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So David has now summed up the entire scene, the whole situation, and he determines in his own mind without hesitation to fight the giant. Why? Because he was able instantly to draw upon his faith. Do you see the power in that? It means that faith and the elements of faith and the principles of faith were never far from the mind of David. He was able instantly to draw upon his faith which means that he had a mind that was conditioned to be in harmony with the Spirit Word. It's very wonderful. And it's very wonderful to realise that out of verse 32. He possessed a mind that was conditioned by the Spirit Word. Conditioned to face crisis or calamity in an attitude of faith. And so as we look at David, we ask, what of ourselves? We talk a lot about faith, don't we? And we know many definitions of faith. But here we find exhibited one of the most important of them. Because faith is what we say and what we do because of what we believe. It is what we say and what we do because of the absolute conviction that is locked into our mind. And that's a picture of David right here at this point. We have to develop those same principles of living close to Yahweh, of being aware of the divine presence and the divine power and of being able to draw close to God in time of need. So David was prepared to go and fight because he saw the situation through Yahweh's eyes and not with the eye of flesh. He did not look at that giant and say, look how big he is, look how enormous he is. How on earth can ever any man ever hope to defeat 
a creature of that stature and power and strength. That's not in his mind at all. He sees everything through Yahweh's eyes. And he knew what had to be done. So he summed up the situation and translated what he observed into basic divine principles. He saw it very clearly. Truth versus error. Righteousness versus wickedness. Israel versus the Gentiles. The God of Israel versus the God of the gods of the Philistines. He could see all that. And we should note too, very, very carefully, that David was quite eager to fight Goliath. We do not read here that David looks around everywhere and looks for some man and says, well, if this is a situation and nobody else is going to try, well, somebody's got to have a go at it. I'll do my best. We don't find that at all. Nothing like that. He is eager to go and fight Goliath. And the lesson to be derived from that is a very powerful one. Because if we desire to be in the kingdom, we cannot avoid coming to grips with our own Goliath. We cannot avoid warfare against the flesh. And in this sense, as well as in the literal situation, Goliath had to be fought and Goliath had to be destroyed. And David knew that and he knew it well. And we know that Yahweh has promised to give the victory to all those who serve him in faith. And had that faithful spirit been alive in the army of Israel at this time, Yahweh Yahweh would have long since disposed of Goliath and the Philistines. Just note for a moment in Psalm 81, verse 13 to 14, and perhaps Note this down against that this particular verse that we're dealing with. Psalm 81, verse 13 and 14. David was aware of this. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. You see, there it is ever so plainly. And the same principle applies today, brethren and sisters. Don't get think it doesn't. It applies today. Yahweh will give us the victory if our faith and our trust and our confidence in Him, if our conviction of the truth is real and deep-seated within us. But Saul, we find here, is shocked to hear these words. Isn't that interesting? Because we've already seen that the mind of David was conditioned by the Spirit Word. Now we see that Saul's mind was not. Verse 33, Saul said it to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him? For thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Saul understood war. But Saul understood warfare from the point of view of the arm of flesh. He did not understand the warfare of faith. And that was his undoing. But you know, when you look at what Saul says, thou art not able to go against this Philistine, 
That was quite true. It was quite true. But it is certain that Saul did not realise the truth of his statement. Saul didn't realise that only Yahweh could give David the victory. In the same way as we can ever attain to victory over the flesh, ourselves. It's only by the grace of God that we can ever attain the kingdom and be finally victorious over the flesh. So he says, for thou art but a youth. And the Hebrew the word there is na'ar, N-A-A-R. And it means anyone from the age of infancy to adolescence, according to some authorities. But others say, that, including Gesenius, that it is used for any young men up to their late teens. And it's rather interesting that in verse 56, David is there turned by another word, a stripling. And there the Hebrew word is alem, E-L-E-M, which means a youth or a young man of the age of puberty. And all of this is further evidence pointing to the fact that David was simply a teenage boy at this time. Some authorities say that that word alem is mainly used of a boy up to the age of 15. But age does not matter in the warfare of faith. It just happens to be a staggering example of it in the case of David before us here. So Saul says to David, you can't do it. You're too young. And he implies inexperience as well. But he says, as for that fellow over there on the other side of the valley, he is a man of war from his youth. That's true too. But he was used to a different kind of war. The warfare of flesh. And do you see, brethren and sisters, what we have here? Saul did not realise it. But on both sides of that valley, about to meet in mortal combat, were two men who were both professional soldiers. Goliath, a soldier of the flesh. David, though a young teenage boy, a soldier in the warfare of faith. Saul didn't understand that. But we do, don't we? And we also understand that there is there a very great lesson for all of us. Perhaps particularly for the young, but nevertheless for all of us. That faith, as God willing we shall see in our next class, can overcome everything that flesh has to offer to try and compete with the power of the Spirit Word. Faith can overcome the world. Faith can overcome everything. And Yahweh will never ever fail those who walk before him in spirit and in truth with their minds conditioned by the spirit word. Minds like David directed by the principle of faith and minds that will exercise total and absolute confidence in the mighty God of Israel in all the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties of life that will develop in each one of us as they did, as a Dean David, a spirit and a disposition that can get us through 
all the problems of life and bring us right to an inheritance in the kingdom.